Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Halifax Library's stand for free speech, lockdown double standards, and government prosecution of a church again. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, Tuesday, June 1st, 2021. If you are a longtime listener to the show, you know we are all about freedom of speech here. It is the most essential freedom because it's the freedom that allows you to tackle all of the other issues you may want to in a society. There are two dimensions to free speech. One is the legal right to free speech, that government is not going to kick in your door and arrest you for saying whatever it is you want to say. The other more important dialogue in a lot of ways is the cultural free speech mentality, the idea that we in society uphold the fact that, yes, we can have disagreements and that is not something to shy away from, that I can think what I think, you can think what you think. Now, we know that this has been under attack. So too has legal free speech. It's when threats against the two are combined together that so many problems tend to happen. Take a look at a lot of the discussion around what the liberals want to do with the internet. But there's been a bit of a victory for free speech in a way, and I, I say this with bated breath, understanding that a lot of the time when this happens, people may end up capitulating down the road. In Halifax, there is a push underway to strip a book from the library because a group of activists don't like that book's thesis. The debate involves Abigail Schreier's bestseller, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. Now, I've never read the book. I've read excerpts from it. I've seen interviews with Abigail Schreier. She's meticulously researched her point, and she takes a position that may be different than what a lot of activists think. You can debate the book. You can read it. You can tear it apart if you want. You can do whatever you'd like. But you have to give other people who want to read that book the opportunity to do so if they seek it out. But that's the part that's missing right now. A community petition was launched trying to strip this book from the shelves of the Halifax Public Library. There are activists like Chris Cochran, who's the vice chair of Pride's board of directors and the transgender and non-binary committee lead. And Chris Cochran says, as a trans person, I'm not going to debate my existence. And this book is definitely debating the existence of trans people. If I can parse that one sentence for a moment... Cochrane says they are not going to debate their existence. That's fine. No one's asking them to. Even if it's true that the book debates trans people's existence, which, by the way, is disputed. A trans person here on Twitter, Debbie Hayton, says, no, Abigail Schreier's book does not debate our existence. Halifax libraries are right to carry it, and we should all just ignore Halifax Pride's little tantrum. But going back to Cochrane's point, Cochrane may think that the book debates their existence, but that doesn't mean Cochrane has to engage in such a debate. Cochrane can do what presumably has been done since the book came out, which is ignore it or talk about why the book might be wrong, but don't deny other people the right to access. This is something that is so fundamental and self-evident. 
And if you look at what actually started this campaign, it was, according to CBC, the person who started the petition noticing that 25 people had placed the book on hold. So 25 people in the entire city of Halifax wanted to read a book. There are two copies of it, and that was enough to get a petition because, well, we can't allow anyone to think anything apart from the activist-driven orthodoxy on trans issues or any other issues. But there's some good news to this I said earlier, and that is that Halifax has thus far not caved. The library is standing firm saying it will not be censoring the book. Free access to information and ideas is a democratic right of every citizen. Public libraries ensure this right by providing the public with opportunities to participate fully in a changing society through access to a wide range of humanity's thoughts, ideas, information, and expression of the creative imagination. We have assessed the book against Halifax Public Library's collection development policy and the Canadian Federation of Library Association's statement on intellectual freedom and have made the decision to not censor the book. And the statement goes on to say that the library has a commitment to open dialogue and intellectual freedom, which is critical. And I will say it is good that libraries have been very much on the right side of this generally in the last little while. Not exclusively. We've seen stories in British Columbia where libraries have not landed on the right side of this, but also some tremendously courageous librarians such as Vickery Bowles in Toronto who in October 2019 was unapologetic in her decision as Toronto's top librarian to allow Megan Murphy, who's also been critical of the trans narrative pushed forward by activists, to allow Megan Murphy the right to speak at a public venue, at a Toronto public library space, when a group wanted to book out a room and have her speak. And the cancel mob tried to subject Vickery Bowles to all of its worst as it does anytime someone says no to them and stands up. But what's notable about this is that people eventually move on. A lot of people who are facing down the activist mobs make the mistake of thinking that the activist mob is actually going to stop whenever it gets what it wants. No. The nature of this mob is that they look for fights. They look for fights anywhere and everywhere. And if they win, they move on. If they lose, they move on. And they may ratchet it up. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. But these activists are interested in warfare. They aren't interested in just these little isolated things that they may pick up, that they may talk about as though they're the end of the world. They're interested in the aggregate of all of them. And there's something very important because these activist groups tend to get a lot of momentum going. And when they get one or two little victories, it tends to balloon into three or four and five. And eventually, no one can say no, which is why it's so notable when the Halifax Library stands up and says, no, we're not going to censor the book. And eventually, if Halifax holds firm, these activists are going to have to move on. Now, Halifax Pride is in response to this boycotting its partnership with the library. It isn't just one or two people connected with Pride that are saying they don't want the book there. The organization itself. Now, I don't know how influential it is. I know Toronto Pride, for example, is tremendously uh, significant in terms of its size and clout. I don't know if that's the case in Halifax. Nevertheless, Halifax Pride has said they will not have a relationship with the library. No library events for its 2021 festival. They won't book any library spaces until this is resolved with some combination of internal review, policy change, and training. So that I think is in and of itself revealing. It's not just this book. 
They want to make sure that no transcritical book will ever be published in the future, and if it is, that the library will never have it. Now, I want to say something here, and this, please don't take it the wrong way. I am not for a second comparing Abigail Schreier to Hitler. Sorry for the, for the fulfillment of Godwin's Law to even invoke this. But I know when book publishers are talking about Mein Kampf, this debate comes up about whether it's important to have as a historic record and not as an endorsement. And I'm actually a firm believer in completeness in that sense. It's important to have access to all forms of books and all forms of literature because Every single book that's written and published is a form of the historical record. You don't need to agree with the point to read the book and to think the book has a right to exist. So if a library were to want to have Mein Kampf, for example, I would not support a Jewish group protesting it because I would say, listen, that book is a part of history. If you want to start talking about burning books, which is basically the equivalent of trying to strip a book from a library shelf so people don't have the ability to access it, especially since Abigail Schreier's book has been deplatformed from any number of other institutions as well. I think Amazon for a time, perhaps even now, to this point, it's still gone from there. But I say this to point out, it is easy, it is very easy for me to sleep at night with my position that free speech is the focal point. Free speech is the goal. And I don't need to debate the contents of individual books. That's the real significant part of this. If you believe in free speech, you don't need to go line by line and audit every single book because you're concerned about the message that book might send. I probably disagree with, I don't know, 80 to 90% of the books that are out there making a political point or a religious point. I disagree with the Quran because I'm a Christian. They disagree with the Bible because they're Muslim. Jews disagree with uh, Buddhist texts, and Buddhists disagree with Jewish texts, and all of this sort of stuff. Agreement does not have to be the standard to respect something's right to exist. And this is the, the irony of this, is that a lot of these trans activists are saying they don't think the book should be allowed because it questions their right to exist, which from all the people that have read this book that I've spoken to is not what the book says. But their response is to deny this author's right to exist, deny her voice in the landscape of literature. And good on Halifax Public Library for standing up for it. Just to pivot for a moment to another example of this, there was a story in my city, in London, Ontario, where a principal of a French Catholic school has been cancelled and fired two years after some incident in which he put on at a cancer fundraiser where everyone was cutting their hair, the hair of a black student to pose for some silly little video. The video went viral in the school, apparently, and two years later, in 2021, this happened in 2019, in 2020. Black Lives Matter seizes this, publishes the video, and all of a sudden you've got people from all corners of society calling for this principal to be fired. The school board capitulated. This principal, who had fun with some students a couple of years ago doing something goofy, and it doesn't sound like actually bothered the students whose hair was picked up from the ground. It's not entirely clear because this is all kind of coming back to anonymous sources. But no one seems to be offended in the moment. Two years later, canceled and fired. The activist mob didn't care about him. They didn't care about this school. They saw an opportunity to use something as a weapon in the war they were already waging. And the sooner we all realize that's what they're doing, the better it's going to be. Back in a moment. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. 
Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Last week on the show, I talked a little bit about Ontario's reopening plan that doesn't actually involve any reopening. I got a lot of feedback on that, mostly negative. Not negative towards me, but negative towards Ontario, who, just to give you a bit of a refresh on this, the final step, the final step in the reopening plan that's been put out says expanding access to indoor settings with restrictions, including where there are larger numbers of people and where face coverings can't always been worn. So yes, Ontario's reopening plan is going to work up to eventually some sports and rec facilities, indoor dining, museums, art galleries, but always with restrictions. And of course, they're not sharing what those restrictions are going to be. Now, looking at Quebec's restrictions, they are a lot slower in nature. They've finally released the curfew that was uh, imposed for several months' time. On June 11th, they're going to allow patios to open. On June 25th, they're going to allow day camps and some more outdoor activities in advance. And by the end of August or later... (laughs) which should never give anyone in Quebec any encouragement, the end of August or later, progressive relief depending on the epidemiological situation and vaccination coverage if 75% of those aged 12 years or over have received a second dose. They're talking about a progressive return, a gradual return at the end of August or later, but they're requiring three quarters of the population to have had two doses of the vaccine, of a COVID-19 vaccine. Now, Ontario says on the surface level that it's using vaccination stats as the baseline here. But as I pointed out on the weekend, there is a bit of a disconnect here because on one hand, they've already crossed that threshold. They've already had 65% of people get their first dose when we're supposed to be in step one, which in and of itself is nothing to be too thrilled about when that's supposed to kick in at 60%. So they're kind of making it up as they go here, which is why we saw the flip-flop this week with the Toronto Maple Leafs and Montreal Canadiens game at the Scotiabank Centre in Toronto. Game 7, which I'm told is significant in hockey. This is the first and last time, by the way, I will ever do a hockey story on this show because the more I talk about it, the more I'm going to say something that makes absolutely no sense. However, initially, there was a proposal to allow fully vaccinated healthcare workers who, again, have been uh, working away for the last 15 months to go to this game, have fun, and then the province said no. There was a huge wave of criticism towards the province and like 14 hours later, the province flipped on this and said 550 fully vaccinated frontline healthcare workers, including hospital and long-term care staff, will be invited to attend Game 7 of the series between the Toronto Maple Leafs and Montreal Canadiens at Scotiabank Arena tonight. So they found a way to actually break their own law to respond to public pressure and allow this. Now, let me be clear. I have no issue with healthcare workers going to a sporting event. I have no issue with that sporting event taking place. My issue has been, why can't everything else go on? Just like I talked a couple of months back about the double standard between churches, which have been shut down by government, and churches being used as film sets, which have been opened up, My view on this, and still to this day, is that anything that can be done safely should be done safely. So if we're allowing healthcare workers to gather in a sporting venue, why can't we allow other people to gather in sporting venues? If we're allowing film sets to film in churches, why can't we let churches open? 
I'm going to be speaking in a couple of moments time with Lisa Bildy of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, who's representing the Church of God in Elmer, which is having fewer than 550 people come together in its parking lot for services and still facing relentless charges and prosecution from the Ontario government. And what's more, we had on the weekend a worship in the square in Waterloo. Four pastors, including Jacob Rayom and Michael Thiessen and Aaron Rock, who came together and said, we're going to just have worship outside in Waterloo. I would bet there's not going to be a single documented transmission of COVID that comes from this event. And to be clear, I haven't learned of any charges taking place. So I don't want to jinx it for the uh, folks in Waterloo that gathered together and had worship. But the point is that people are starting to see through all of these measures, which right now are not necessary. COVID cases, if you use those as the benchmark, as the government does, continue to go down. Outdoor transmission has been proven to be negligible or non-existent, depending on the study, and even indoor. We're talking about a venue here that takes thousands and thousands of people. 20,000 folks can fit into Scotiabank Arena, and the government was at, fir at first saying, no, we can't allow 550 in, but now is saying, well, okay, that's fine. So this actually proves they have to be somewhat responsive to bad PR, although <laughs> that hasn't really worked with all of the anti-lockdown bad PR that the government's been getting from people that are saying, hey, what's the holdup? Why can't we reopen? For pretty much all of the last six months, Toronto has been in lockdown. Montreal, same boat. Other cities, other jurisdictions have had a bit of a different story here. But in Canada, we were promised that one-dose summer without really anyone articulating what that would look like. Doug Ford has come out and said Ontario gets to have a two-dose summer. Whoop-de-doo. Based on what we know about upcoming shipments, everyone in Ontario who wants a vaccine could be fully vaccinated by the end of August. That's right, friends, Ontario is ready to deliver a two-dose summer. But that two-dose summer isn't really going to do anything if the restrictions, as the Ontario roadmap suggests, are going to be in place indefinitely. A reopening plan has to actually have reopening, and not just in a one-off, isolated situation to uh, make the media happy by letting healthcare workers go to a game, but by actually reopening and letting everyone else in the province do the same thing. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. We are back on The Andrew Lawton Show, another day in Canada, which means still more attempts by governments, specifically in Ontario, to go after churches for wanting to assemble as the Constitution guarantees and as their faiths have commanded them to for generations. Most notably, we see this happening in Elmer, Ontario, with the Church of God. We've had the pastor there, Pastor Henry Hildebrandt, on the show in the past, and this week the Church of God was back in court again at the behest of the Ontario government trying to impose more penalties, more findings of contempt, and the judge, after a relatively short hearing, had actually imposed tens of thousands of dollars more in fines on the church and on its pastor. Representing them has been Lisa Bildy, a lawyer with the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms. Lisa, good to have you back. Thanks for coming on today. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So this was, I, I mean, as far as the the long-standing uh, back and forth we, we've seen on this case, was there anything partic particularly unique about this hearing, or was it just, you know, another round of fines? 
Well, it, it was a little bit different in that I, it feels like things are maybe settling down a little bit. And even though we were back in court on, you know, contempt proceedings, which is a very serious matter, um, the last time we did this, the government made sure to tell the court all about all the transgressions and, uh, you know, right to the last minute telling about any other subsequent services that had happened since they had filed their motion. They didn't do that this time. Uh, and I thought that was interesting, and I noted it in court, that... Uh, basically, when they had their um, service on May 16th, which is what we were we were um, talking about in the contempt proceedings today, they had 300 people in attendance. And then there were two more services, and there were more people in attendance. And so it seems like, as a public health measure, this isn't really working. The more they come down hard on this church, the more people want to turn up and show their support. And so... Uh, you know, I think it's interesting that it felt a little bit more subdued this time. And I do hope that as especially as we're moving into the summer and things are starting to open up a little bit more, hopefully, um, and more outdoor services are going to be permitted in the in the near future, that the, the temperature will be turned down on all of this. I know it came up at the hearing a week and a half ago, which ultimately was the one that was adjourned to today. And the judge had mentioned, you know, there's not much more that can be done. We can keep putting these fines on, but if the church is uh, going to keep continuing to assemble and having these services, which are now outdoor, the government has limited means on this. So in a lot of ways, is the government kind of conceding? I know that was the judge that said that, but is the government conceding that this is sort of just going to be this repetitive process, and that might be why, as you've just said, it's it's losing a bit of steam? Well, it could be this repetitive process, but they also could escalate things, and they could make this criminal contempt, and they could seek to have the pastor put in jail. Um, but I think probably most uh, people re recognize now, and we've done this a few times in Alberta, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem, and it, and it absolutely hardens people's positions and in fact probably triggers more people to say you know what's going on is this really a public health crisis or or is there something else going on so it's not to their benefit to do it that way one comment the judge made the at, at the hearing that stood out was that uh, Pastor Hildebrand has positioned himself as, and I'm quoting directly here, the face of the resistance in a way. And then he went on to say there are consequences that must flow from that. And that, to me, seems to reinforce what you've said in court in the past, which is that the government does really seem to be targeting this particular church. I mean, we've learned of rallies that have been taking place elsewhere for any number of causes that have not raised the ire of the state. But they are continuing, or have been up until this week, to uh, really devote a, a disproportionate amount of energy on, on this particular church and this particular pastor. Well, it certainly seems that way, and certainly to him. Uh, you know, they there have been other rallies, as you know, and I and in the affidavit that I had quickly scrambled to put together the last at the last minute before the hearing, when they first the, the government had brought this. We talked about this in your last show. The um, uh, the government had brought a motion the morning of the court date that we were supposed to respond to. So I had thrown together an affidavit that had some articles about the recent Palestinian protests. And now, of course, those aren't subject to court order. But the reason they're not subject to court order is because nobody's bothered to ticket them and take them to that to that um, level of enforcement. But they have done that with a couple of the churches. And so I, I've been told, and I, so I didn't raise them in my submissions today, um, but, you know, the, the, the judge isn't interested in hearing about, um, about, you know, what's going on with other protests. We're focusing on this church. Did they violate the court order? Um, and, and the answer is yes. And so, so really, you know, the arguments that I can make in this context are extremely limited, and, the, and they were, because 
really, it's 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 a kind of an open and shut case. There's an order. They knew about it. They breached it. We're done. Um, but I think that is relevant, and I think it's relevant to the broader question of if we're trying to protect the pre preserve the uh, judicial integrity, the, the you know the, the judicial system's integrity, the rule of law, um, we can't have certain rules applying to some people and not to others because. Uh, the people who are being targeted are, of course, going to take the position that they're being particularly singled out, that they're being oppressed by it. So uh, it is important in a system that is grounded on the rule of law that there be equality of treatment. Now, I'm not saying that there should be fines for the people who were attending the Palestinian pro uh, protest. They're entitled to protest. They have a good cause, perhaps, that they want to protest it in their view um, or not. I mean, it, you know, that's part of the living in a democracy. People get to express through peaceful protests their views and whether you agree with them or not. So, I, I, you know, I'm all for them having the right to protest, but there shouldn't be a double standard. I think that's a, a very important point. And looking to for looking forward here, we know that the government has had the doors of the church locked. This is why, I mean, the weather's getting nicer, so it works out well that if the church is uh, very much uh, passionate and dedicated about having outdoor services, it, it's a little bit more tenable now than it would have been, say, in mid-January. But long term, we're starting to see some restrictions ease in Ontario. And I say that with some reticence, and it's a topic that we, we've covered in different contexts on this show. But suppose the restrictions lift to such a point that it would be viable and lawful in the government's eyes for the church to assemble inside. Are those locks automatically going to come off? Not automatically, but if, if we get to the point where we're allowed to have at least 30% occupancy in the building, we have a court-ordered right to come back to court on two days' notice in order to, to, change, to try and change the order, and I expect that that would be granted. I don't think that they want to be, um, you know, the, the judge doesn't want to be unnecessarily punitive to the, court, to the church. They're not trying to keep them out forever, um, but as we argued in a previous hearing, when it was at 30%, there really weren't enforcement issues. And so that seems to be a good threshold uh, for allowing them to return inside their building. But unfortunately, you know, the government hasn't really laid out uh, a framework that shows us when, when this is going to be done or whether it's ever going to be done and, and what's going to happen in the fall is that, it, you know, it's still very uncertain. I mean, I don't think we're through the woods on all of this yet, even if it does open a little bit this summer. So I guess what is the next step here? I mean, are you, I know you don't want to be in the prediction game necessarily, but from what you were saying at the beginning of the interview, that it seems like some of the heat's coming off. Are you thinking that this is going to continue, this this sort of, uh, you know, lifting the foot off the, the gas pedal, such as it is, from an enforcement perspective? Well, I don't know for sure, uh, and I can't predict, and I don't really want to predict. As you say, it's, uh, it's, it is hard to know. It seems like maybe... Uh, people all need a breather all around. We all recognize that things are escalating and, and it doesn't go anywhere good. Um, I mean, from the from the church's perspective, the more that people, the more they're enforced against, the more people come out. So maybe so maybe it's to their benefit on some strange level that, you know, more people come out. And, and as the Pastor Hildebrand has said in his services, um, you know, they're 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 coming and they're, you know, um, finding finding Christ, which is his job. His job is as he sees it is to save souls. Right. So. Um, the more people who come out, the better. But from from a general societal perspective, from the government's perspective, um, it really doesn't benefit anybody to keep the um, to keep us coming back into court week after week after week. It probably it doesn't solve the public health issue. It doesn't protect the integrity of the system, particularly in my view. I, others may disagree. 
Um, and, you know, frankly, it's a lot of work uh, to for the, for the government, too, to keep having to, to come back into court with all these materials and um, and the relationship with the police also, you know, they're, they're de depending on the police to go out to the church every week and to monitor and to gather evidence. You know, the relationship between the community and the police is one that is important not to not to um, completely destroy. I mean, it takes a lot to um, to develop trust in your police force. You know, they, these these are guys walking around with guns, uh, women too, um, and they need to earn the, the trust of their community that they police. And most of them do that. Um, but when things get to the point where they've got drones flying over the church and it really feels like it's very targeted, those relationships get very strained. And I think it probably is good for everybody just to take a deep breath, settle down a little bit, and, um, and you know, get back to just trying to work together a little bit more um, constructively. I know we talked uh, last time you were on the show about the bigger picture aspect of this. Uh, the constitutional hearing has been scheduled for this church and, and other churches in one sort of omnibus hearing in October, so still a, a considerable uh, period of time between now. When that time comes, will it matter if uh, the Church of God and, and other churches in this action can point to these services they've been having and say, we haven't seen an uptick in cases, we haven't seen any demonstrable public health challenges or outbreaks from this? It, is any of that going to be relevant when these are going to a, a full hearing on the merits? Well, I think they're uh, certainly they're relevant. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why we've had all these restrictions is allegedly to control the spread of, of outbreaks. And as we've learned more about the science, unfortunately, the um, the political measures have not really kept pace with what we've learned. So, for example, uh, there is good evidence now, very solid evidence, that asymptomatic spread is really not uh, a concern. It's not... In something in, in a meta-analysis of 54 studies, it was concluded, and so that's very good science, by the way, because when you when you analyze 54 different studies, you're, you're effectively getting rid of any of the deficiencies in any particular one, and they were all done of households, where you're getting rid of a lot of the variables. So in 54 studies of household transmission, asymptomatic spread was found only to occur 0.7% of the time, so seven out of a thousand times. And so, so many of these measures that we have are predicated on there being, you know, we have to be fearful of healthy people because they may unknowingly be spreading the virus. And the, the science is, is evolving to show us that maybe that is not so much a concern. And same thing with outdoors. You know, the, the, um, the science is also showing that there's very little, like maybe a percent of spread that can be attributed to any outdoor gatherings. So um, the fact that the churches have been largely, you know, they, they haven't contributed to any spread in their communities that uh, has been traced to them, um, I think it's going to be very relevant evidence. And of course, we'll have our expert evidence as well to, to bring all those studies into court. Good. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, I, I'm a, a kind of a purist on the constitutional grounds in this sense and saying, listen, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly. But when the government has positioned everything as being a part of these uh, reasonable limits that, that we all know uh, tend to define the constitutional freedoms, it is very important to be able to say that those limits are not grounded in science. And, and you're very right that in Ontario and, and other jurisdictions, the more we've learned about it, at the same time, restrictions also seem to have gone the other direction. So I appreciate your work on this. Lisa Bildy from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Andrew.
That was Lisa Bildy, tremendous lawyer and also tremendous advocate for Liberty. Very grateful to have her on the show. I know it has been, as I think I joked with Lisa last time we had her on, all of these constitutional lawyers have been working overtime and I think will continue to. So it's been good to get them to uh, peel away uh, for this show uh, when they can to talk about these cases. And another big one that I'm actually covering this week involving the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms that I'll have more to say about, I think, on the next show involves the hotel quarantine case. That is a federal challenge that's going on as well. And that's quite a, a lengthy hearing. So we'll talk about that later this week. But I do want to give a big thank you to all of you for tuning into the show today. We'll be back in a couple days time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you. God bless and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.